This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, bookseller Alan Beats tells us how readers saved Borderlands books. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot reviews PW's annual salary survey. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So what's happening on the nonfiction side? So we have at number two, Brandon Stanton, who was a guest of ours for his first book, Humans of New York, with Humans of New York Stories. And here he's, this is, uh, he's got currently over 14 million followers on his Humans of New York blog. And here are the stories behind some of the photos. Now he's expanded it beyond just photos mm-hmm. to little snippets of stories. And that's number two. That was a great um, interview. That was a really good one. Yeah. yeah th- those yeah. of you who are listening in via our website, you're going to have to scroll all the way back down. It was one of our earliest episodes, but I definitely recommend it. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Yeah. Yeah, he really was. At number seven, we have uh, Nancy Fuller with a cookbook, Farmhouse Rules, Simple Seasonal Meals for the Whole Family. And, and, and what's interesting about some of the cookbooks we've been getting recently is they've had major bumps in sales on QVC. A cookbook, cookbook makes it on QVC. It's bound to be on a bestseller list. So this one has sold about 11,000 copies of the cookbook. Wow. So, um, uh, and about a third of, sorry, two thirds of those sales were because of QVC. So, uh, so we've got that. Then we have former New York giant Michael Strahan with Wake Up Happy, The Dream Big, Win Big Guide to Transforming Your Life, uh, written with Veronica Chambers. That's at number 12. Uh, he's now the host, um, uh, you know, TV host, and he goes beyond cycle babble this is according to our review in this practical pep talk about creating a winning attitude to solve the puzzle of life and achieve any goal so that's at number 12 at uh, number 15 bob woodward the last of the president's men uh, here is, he exposes one of the final pieces of the richard nixon puzzle in this book so that's um um coming out with a bunch of Nixon books. Mm -hmm. And then at number 19, we have uh, Find Me Unafraid, Love, Loss, and Hope in an African Slum by Kennedy O'Deed. Uh, We say in the starred review, this riveting memoir takes place primarily in Kibera, one of Kenya's worst slums, uh, which population is about 170,000 to a million. And the authors narrate in alternating chapters. Uh, So so they talk about this. Uh, Odetti grew up there and Jessica Posner is someone who had, uh, she's a woman who had come in uh, as part of the Shining Hope for Communities. So he's known officially throughout uh, Kenya as mayor. Um, They came together and um, they've written this book. 
and uh, number 19. Uh, at number 20, we have Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, memoir by Elvis Costello. Uh, that's been getting a lot of press. He's been giving some talks, some interviews, mm-hmm. uh, events at the Y. We say in this uh, massive, circuitous biography, rock music icon uh, Costello attempts to put his life into context with varying degrees of success. It's big. Some may say that all these uh, tangents he takes are, are really wonderful. Uh, I haven't read it, uh, but I'm a big fan of his music. Uh, but our reviewers seem to think that some were good, some were some some detours were not as interesting. Number twenty one. This is a follow up Thug Kitchen Party Grub for Social Mother F star C K E R S. Got to keep it FCC compliant. <laughs> exactly. Here. So uh, this is a follow up. Thug Kitchen was was huge two years ago, and this is the follow up, and uh, it's at number twenty one debuting here. So that's what we have. And uh, in case you didn't get it, that's a cookbook. Lots of cookbooks. Lots of cookbooks, though very few of them with asterisks. No, this is it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's a smaller demographic. Right. Uh, So we have a new number one on the hardcover fiction list by Nicholas Sparks, Mm -hmm. See Me, and uh, it's a romance novel. I'm not supposed to say that Nicholas Sparks maintains that he doesn't write romance novels, but this one does happen to be about two people who fall in love and overcome some obstacles and eventually uh, aim themselves toward a happy ending. So I'm going to call it a romance novel. Novel. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, we don't have you. a review of it yet, but um, it's a, uh, basically a great feel-good story. Now, the guy has uh, a history of violence and bad decisions. Uh, the woman is the hardworking daughter of Mexican immigrants. It seems like a real opposites attract story. Um, and uh, the two of them come together and make each other's lives better. So that's at number one. Uh, down at number six, we have City on Fire by Garth Risk Hallberg. Uh, we called this a maniacally detailed, exhaustingly clever depiction of 1970s New York. It's packed with urban angst, intellectual energy, and sinister pitfalls. It's an epic of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. So if you are nostalgic for New York of the 1970s, yeah. this is the book for you. Uh, however, we, we say that readers wishing to wallow in cultural trivia will find much to savor in Hallberg's all-encompassing, occasionally overwritten effort. But others will be left to wonder how so much energy could generate so little light. Yeah, that book in um, the last two weeks have got, has gotten so much attention everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, major reviews, um, most of which have been glowing. So this this book, and it's a big book. It's a big book. It's a huge book. Yeah. So, but, um, it, uh, but it's selling. It, it, yeah, it's selling very well. Um, it sold 11,000 copies yeah. its first week out. Very respectable. Yeah. Um, so down at uh, number 11, we have Foreign Affairs by Stuart Woods. Uh, this is the 35th novel in the Stone Barrington series. Mm-hmm. Barrington is a peripatetic New York lawyer, playboy, and investor. Um, the sort of guy that Christian Grey really wants to be. And uh, in this case, he's the star of Thriller. And uh, it says that uh, he... The finale boasts the Woods' customary combination of panache and brio, mm. um, which is one of the sentences you just love to write. Yeah, right. So uh, that's, that's probably one that's mostly for fans of the series. Uh, moving down a little bit, at number 15, Hell's Foundation's Quiver by David Weber. Um, this is the strong eighth 
military science fiction novel in the Safe Hold series. Our review says it's certainly not a suitable entry point for new readers, but confirmed fans will appreciate the battlefield action and political maneuvering. It's uh, it, I feel like I've seen more science fiction books creeping into the top mm-hmm. 20 of our bestseller list oh, recently. Yeah. So this one's yeah. at number 15. And uh, moving down a little bit, uh, 26, we have The Mountain Shadow by Gregory David Roberts. Uh, this is the sequel to Shantaram. And we say that it really defies easy character- categorization, which is one of its many charms. Uh, and yeah, the dashing hero is an Australian fugitive, rides a motorcycle, has a social conscience, uh, and uh, he's having a great time floating around modern Bombay. And uh, we say the series of robust, robust retro capers mm. with contemporary trappings will have readers feverishly turning the pages. And finally, uh, down at number 29, I just wanted to mention 13 Ways of Looking by Colin McCann. Uh, we give this a starred review. It's, uh, it's a novella and three heartbreaking stories. Mm. Um, and uh, we say that they evoke insecurity in the age of security cameras. Uh, really gave this a very powerful review. Sounds like an incredible book. Uh, yeah. We say separately and together, these four works prove McCann a master with a poet's ear, a psychologist's understanding, and a humanitarian's conscience. Well, fantastic. So that's down at number 29, and uh, highly recommend it. Great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Alan Beats tells us his unlikely bookstore success story. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Alan Beats on the line. He's the owner of Borderlands Books, a legendary independent bookstore in San Francisco. Hello, Alan. Welcome back to PW Radio. Hi, it's nice to be back. So we spoke with you about a year and a half ago about Borderlands and, and how bookstores can survive the reception. Catch us up on what's been happening with you guys since then. Well, it's been pretty interesting. Um, since we last talked, the major thing that has happened for us is that San Francisco, where we're located, passed an ordinance that will progressively increase the minimum wage from uh, the when they passed the ordinance, the minimum wage was $10.74 an hour. And by the middle of 2017, the minimum wage will be $15 an hour. Um, that was a little difficult for our shop. Um, mm. A substantial portion of our staff work part-time and work for you know not a lot more than minimum wage. And that increase in expense was going to basically make the business not financially viable. Um, if we were in different fields where we could adjust our prices to accommodate for the higher cost of labor, it wouldn't really be a problem, but books have a price printed on them, and um, especially you know, with the, the sort of cost competition that happens with, with companies like Amazon, it's really not practical for us to add a surcharge on top of the publisher's price for books. So there was no way that we could increase our our revenue enough to make up for the increased cost of wages. So that ordinance passed in November of last year. And prior, about the middle of last year, I sort of had a sense where the political wind was blowing and sat down into the math and realized that the business wouldn't be viable. 
so I then planned to close uh, Borderlands at the end of March this year. I announced that in February, and the sort of general public reaction was very intense. I can get into that more in a little bit, but the best part of the reaction was among our customers and even people who who weren't regular customers of ours, but who were longtime residents in San Francisco, they really didn't want us to close, and they really wanted us to try to find a find some sort of solution. So we had a, a public forum at uh, at the store in the middle of February. My primary purpose in doing that was to offer uh, an an opportunity for everyone to sort of say their piece and for me to explain why we were closing and to answer questions. I also wanted to solicit suggestions, but I wasn't very hopeful that someone was going to come up with a solution that I hadn't considered since I had been mulling over the problem at that point for six months, seven months. But the thing that happened at the meeting was I was surprised by the degree of enthusiasm for some ideas that, you know, honestly, I thought were sort of sort of crazy. One of the no- most notable ones was someone suggested that we sell a membership card that gave people the right to pay more for our books. Um, and about half the people in the audience thought that that was a great idea. I thought it was nuts. And... Um, it did, however, bring home to me just how much people wanted to keep the store open. Tell us a little bit about the Borderlands history. Like, what is it about the store that inspires this kind of loyalty? It's a good question. Um, we, you know, we try to be a good member of the community. We are one of the largest uh, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and horror specialty bookstores in the United States. And actually, as far as I know, we're one of the largest in the world. Beyond that, we just try to treat our customers well and, you know, be nice and be fair. Um, you know, we host a lot of author events. We, you know, try to give back to the community. But basically, I think from talking to my customers, the main reason that we inspire that loyalty is we do a good job and people like us. I, I haven't been able to discern any other sort of, you know, magic ingredient that makes us, makes us special. How long have you been around? We've been in business since 1997, and we've been in our current location since 2001. And uh, describe to us the current location. I'm, I'm assuming it's in the heart of someplace San Francisco where you've got some, some walking traffic. Am I, am I off? Or? We actually, yeah, no, we, we're, we're located on Valencia Street in San Francisco, which is sort of the uh, probably the most popular kind of shopping and, and restaurant area in the Mission District in San Francisco. So it's um, when we moved here, it was very sketchy and um, had a lot of problems. It has since become very, uh, very popular and, and, and kind of a big destination area. So, yeah, we have a lot of walk-by traffic. So you had all of these devoted people, um, and, and your trick, I guess, was to, to monetize that without exploiting it. Does that, does that sound about right? Well... I don't know if I would use the word monetize because that sort of implicitly suggests a kind of 
uh, element of commercial exploitation, not necessarily in a negative way, but, you know, you look at something and go, how can I get money from this? And that wasn't actually the thought process. The thought process was, how can we solve our financial shortfall with the, 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 you know, how can we use the support that we have to solve the fact that we're just not going to be making enough money? So it, it seems like a very fine difference, but it's actually it's it's actually a fundamental attitude that has affected a lot of the things that we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not our solution essentially was not to sell something to our customers, but to give our customers a chance to say that they want to sort of stay open and provide the money for us to do that. So what we did is we spent a fair amount of time thinking about what we could do that would generate the revenue, use the support of our customers, but not be asking for sort of donations or a handout or or something along those lines, because I, I find that idea kind of distasteful in a for-profit business. So what we came up with was a relatively simple piece of math, which is that our financial shortfall in 2017 would be about $30,000 per year. And so we said that if 300 people would act as as sponsors for the store at a cost of $100 per year, uh, we would stay open. And we would stay open as long as there were 300 people who were willing to put up 100 bucks mm-hmm. each per year to keep us open. We also came up with a number of benefits that we could offer our sponsors not again, not specifically financial benefits per se, but ways that we could do things to to, to basically do them favors and support them as they're supporting us. Yeah, I, I and think, I think the the things that you offer the sponsors are really interesting because you clearly put a lot of thought into um, not just sort of repaying money with money, but looking at ways that you could provide great benefits with low overhead. Like I remember you writing about this and thinking it was just super savvy. It's worked out pretty well. I have to say one of the most popular benefits that we offer our sponsors is that we receive packages for them. Um, because in, in, you know, in a dense urban area like San Francisco, um, it can be very difficult to get a delivery from UPS. If you work 9 to 5 and you're not home when the UPS driver arrives with, with your box, if they leave it on the step, it won't be there when you get home. Right. And if there's no one there to sign for it, now you have to go down to the UPS office, and it's a whole headache. So we tell our sponsors, go ahead and have it shipped to us, and then come by and pick it up. Oh, that's wonderful. And there, there are a lot of our sponsors who take advantage just, just of that one thing, which, of course, costs us nothing. We get UPS deliveries every day, and it just takes the time to give them a quick phone call and say, hey, your box is here. Well, this this is a little bit like a uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, one thing is um, I, I think of here the Meadowlands Stadium where the New York Jets and the Giants play. They decided to come up with personal seat licenses where you have the license to uh, to to get sub, uh, subscription tickets, which is different from what you have. But also, I'm thinking like a hundred dollars. That's what uh, for those who shop on Amazon will get for free shipping. Um, but here they're getting free delivery. Yeah, in essence. What were some of the more in, some other incentives that 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 you got? How did you get three hundred people, and how long did it take you? Um, sort of two separate questions. Let me ask. Let me answer the last one first. Yeah. Um, it took forty-two hours <laughs> for us to have three hundred sponsors, um, which astonished 
me and everyone else involved in the process. Once we announced that the phone literally started ringing off the hook and the email started flooding in, um, we have continued, you know, I see no reason to cap the maximum, you know, cap the number of sponsors at a maximum. So we've continued to, you know, let people become sponsors. And at this point, we have over 800 sponsors, which is a degree of response that I didn't imagine in my wildest dreams would happen. So that's that's sort of the second question. And the first question is sort of what what things we're doing for our sponsors. Um, we we keep coming up with with sort of new ideas as we think of them, but a couple of cardinal ones are that. Uh, Sponsors can rent the bookstore and or the cafe that adjoins the bookstore um, outside of our normal operating hours for essentially only our cost of staffing them, uh, which works out to about in between $25 and $125 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that costs us nothing. We're paying the rent regardless of you know whether someone's in the building or not. And that ends up being a very inexpensive rate to to rent a space to have a you know birthday party, or we've had people use the space to do benefits, um, you know, things along those lines. Have you had any weddings yet? Thus far, since we started the sponsorship program, no. Prior to the sponsorship program, there are actually the two weddings that happened. <laughs> oh wow! But no, no, no one has done that yet. I'm sure that they will, though. <laughs> um. Well, so, so far, you know, that's that's one example. We throw a party for our sponsors quarterly, that um, you know is just a sort of bring you know BYOB potluck kind of thing. Again, doesn't cost us anything, and um, sponsors just have a chance to get together and hang out. They get to shop in the store when no one else is around, and uh, you know, we have like door prizes that get donated. We get advanced reading copies from publishers that we give away to um, you know, advanced reading copies of books that haven't been published yet that we give away to. Uh, to our sponsors and things along those lines. Sounds like you're you are in in effect kind of creating a a, a community there by by allowing them to use your uh, you, you know your store as as kind of a meeting or event place. We are. I think it would be more accurate to say that we've refined the community that existed already. Mm. Because this you know this wouldn't have worked if we hadn't already had a community that supported the store. But what we've done is we've produced a way for that community to be more involved, both in terms of supporting the store and also in terms of having access to things that go on at the store that the general public don't have, don't, don't have access to. I, I think you were also, I got the sense that you were also really surprised at how geographically distributed the community was. I mean, I, I, I proudly have my Borderlands you know, one of the first 300 sponsors patch and, you know, so do my partners because it may have been 10 years since we lived in San Francisco, but we still love your store and we still have so many happy memories of it and we still want it to be there the next time we're in town. Uh, and I, I got the sense that you were really surprised about how many sponsorships you were selling to people outside of the Bay Area. I I was. I was very pleasantly surprised. We have uh, sponsors in the Netherlands. We have sponsors in Australia. We have a number of sponsors from Britain. And we have sponsors all over the United States. Um, some of them former customers and, you know, or former 
resident San Francisco customers like yourself, and some people who had actually never been to the store but either hoped to come to the store when they came to San Francisco or just supported the idea of independent bookselling and what we were doing. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Alan Beats. He's the owner of Borderlands Books, and he's telling us how they saved the store with the help of a very devoted community. Now, do you think this is something that could only work for a specialty store like yours? You're specializing in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and you know, I think that's part of why you built up this devoted clientele is because you really, really know your stuff on this one topic. So do you think that a, a more general independent store or a store in maybe a, a smaller town could kind of adapt the techniques that you used? Absolutely. What, what, for, for something like this to work, what it is dependent upon is having a group of customers that care about one's business remaining open and continuing to function. I think that any bookstore could do this. I think, honestly, almost any type of business that can generate that connection to their customers could do something like this. Um, for, for example, uh, I'm sure everybody has had the experience in their life of a restaurant that they adored and they, you know, was, was a place you went to for birthdays and, and, and just, it was your favorite place. And then that restaurant closed down for financial reasons. And I know for myself, I would happily pony up a hundred dollars to keep uh, a restaurant in my, one of my restaurants like that was a place called Ticuz. And I would happily have ponied up a hundred dollars a year just so that it would stay open. I mean, forget them doing anything for me because I felt a very strong investment in that business and I really liked it and I wanted it to remain open. So I think almost any business could do this as long as they have a community that cares. You have a, you had mentioned a, a cafe attached to your bookstore. Um, has that helped you with, with, uh, with traffic, with people coming in? Is that something new or, or have you always had it? It's relatively new. We opened it about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And in terms of helping with traffic for our store, not so much so. I didn't really anticipate that it would. Given that we're a specialty bookshop, um, a lot of the people who want what we have are already aware of our existence. Mm-hmm. Were we a general interest bookstore, where sort of any we might have something for anyone who walked through, I think that the impact would be different. But realistically, even among even among people who patronize bookstores and buy books, uh, our potential market is maybe ten percent. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we actually generate a whole lot of sales because of that. We do generate an income stream, and it does give us an outstanding space to help us host author events. Right. So it's been good, but not good in that way. How big is the, your space, including the cafe? Uh, well, the bookstore is 2,000 square feet, and the cafe is 1,500 square feet. That's so the total sense. is 3,500 square feet. 
and and the bookstore is full of books. <laughs> it is, it yeah. is just it is just books and shelving everywhere. Um, are you are you still selling used books? Is that still a part of your business? Because it's a very rare thing these days. Absolutely. Yeah. Our, we originally when I originally opened my shop, we only sold used books, and that's that's always been a, a very important part of our business. So we we carry used books in the sort of just you know a used copy of a book just to read. We also carry rare and antiquarian books as well, you know, old older first editions and rare editions of, of authors' works. So what would be your advice for other independent bookstores or even, as you said, other independent businesses of any kind um, that are struggling, that are scrambling and are trying to figure out um, a way to reach out to their communities and see whether this level of support is available to them? My first and strongest piece of advice was be honest and be forthcoming. I was very clear about the problems that we were facing and the reasons for them and the reasons for the decisions that I was making. And I've continued to be very clear uh, with both our customers and our sponsors about what's going on now. And I think that's very important. The other thing that I think is extremely important is to ask for what you need rather than just asking for help. Mm. If I had said, I need some sponsors, I don't know what the response would have been. But by clearly quantifying it in terms of, I need this many sponsors at this amount of money to deal with this expense, Mm -hmm. it made it very clear. The final thing that's very important is to consider the sustainability of the solution. Um, If the problem that we had been facing at the beginning of this year had just been a matter of you know, me getting into a motorcycle accident and having medical bills to pay, the solution would have would have been quite simple. I could have asked our customers saying, hey, you know, we need X amount of money to cover extra staffing while I recover until I come back to work. And that would have been a one-shot deal. I could have done that with Kickstarter. There's all kinds of ways I could have done that. But given that what we need is a permanent structural solution to a financial shortfall, I had to structure this as every year, 300 sponsors, $100 each. The year that it doesn't happen is the year that we close because I have to think about the long-term sustainability of the solution. Mm -hmm. But speaking of thinking long-term, now you're making plans or having some ideas about really long-term solutions like owning a building. Tell us a little bit about that. Certainly. When I opened my shop, I my intention was to start a business for myself and run that business, and then my expectation was that at some point in the future, either the business would be not viable, or I would decide that I no longer wish to run the business, at which point I would close it or sell it. Given the support that we've received, I feel a somewhat greater obligation to, if possible, find a path forward where Borderlands can continue to function even if I'm no longer involved, either because I'm dead or I can't work anymore or I don't want to work anymore. So I've been looking at much longer-term plans. And I think that for any bookstore in any major urban area, the key to long-term survival or one of the keys to long-term survival is owning the building that your store is located in. Given that we received... 800 sponsors this year rather than 300 that were required, if people continue to sponsor at that level, in in five to 
to 10 years, we'll have accumulated enough extra funds to make a down payment on a building, even in San Francisco, even in this insane market. Mm. So that's actually the real long-term plan that I have. And in that case, I would set up a either a nonprofit or some other structure to continue operating the business after I die. That goal would be to keep the borderlands operating for 50 to 100 years. Wow. What a, what a great ambition. We're science fiction folks. Science fiction people tend to take a longer view, I think, than, uh, than sort of the general population. We're used to thinking about the future and thinking far into the future. Right. Hmm. So you haven't started the next sponsorship drive yet, and uh, you know you've you've got uh, this past experience of you know the first time around, but the first time around you also got a lot of buzz, a lot of media. Um, so do you have any idea what the next round is going to look like? I have no idea whatsoever. I suspect. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm pretty confident that despite the fact that we won't have all the buzz and there won't be the sort of high emotions running Mm. in January of next year, I still would be surprised if we don't make 300 sponsors, given that we have 800 right now. So I suspect that we will make our goal, and I suspect that um, we will be in business next year. Beyond that, I have no idea. I think that it would be marvelous if we, you know, maintained the number of sponsors that we have now or even increased it. And, you know, as I mentioned, given the sort of long-term plans that I have, that would really facilitate those plans. But in terms of what's actually going to happen, I have no idea. Really, we are making this up as we go along because I know of no other business that's tried something like this. So I have nothing to compare it to. And what are your plans? I mean, at any given in any given year, there are going to be people who had a hundred dollars last year who don't have it this year. Um, what are your plans for reaching out to people who haven't sponsored you before um, but might do so in the future? I don't have any. Candidly, in some ways, the sponsorship program every single year is a natural test of whether or not there is enough support to continue operating the business. Mm. Sponsorships are not a product that we're trying to sell, nor are we a nonprofit that I, I, I think it's totally appropriate for a nonprofit to go out and do fundraising and pursue people and, and try to generate support. We're a for-profit business that supports me and my staff. I don't think it's appropriate for me to be asking for people to you know, essentially donate to us as, as I would feel it were appropriate if you were a museum or a nonprofit or, or some other organization of that type. Right. So given that we're not trying to sell a product and given that we're not trying to solicit donations, I don't think that it's appropriate for us to, you know, kind of go out and try to reach people. People, If people hear about it, I mean, there's no shortage of people who've heard about this. If they wish right. to support it, I think that they should. But I'm not going to try to convince them to. I love the way that you're pursuing this in such uh, a specifically, deliberately moral way. It, it, yeah. sound, it sounds like that's a real driver for you, that it, you know, whatever happens, you want to look back at it and say, I did the right thing. That is actually the way I live most of my life, because some mornings it's hard enough to look in the mirror anyway. The last thing I want to do is look at the mirror and see someone who behaved unethically. Right. 
going back to when you first started this, how was it that you got word out and, and word out so well, it seemed? It seemed like you had um, people, well-known people who were uh, uh, you know, helping you, helping get the word out. People did sort of broadcast the information quite wide, widely. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot, you know, over the years we've developed, you know, really strong relationships with publishers and authors. You know, I have personal friendships with a lot of people in this business, <clears throat> and they sort of sent this information out to their mailing lists. Um, you know, they sent it out via Twitter and, and so forth and on their blogs, and so it was discussed a lot. Mm. And a number of people who have a very strong um, social media presence, like John Scalzi and Cory Doctorow, we're talking about this. And so the the news really sort of spread like wildfire. All that we did is we, you know, sent out the information in our newsletter and via our Twitter feed and put it on our blog. And, you know, we, we're not that prominent, but a lot of other people picked it up. Well, there, there are a lot of us who are very passionate about your store and we want it to survive. I have to say the best thing about all of this wasn't being able to remain open. That was wonderful. But the best thing about it, for I think everyone that works here, was the sort of validation that it gave us that what we've been doing all these years, we were doing well, mm-hmm. and that it mattered to people. And we knew that it mattered, but we didn't know it mattered as much mm-hmm. as it obviously did. So that felt, that was great. It was just wonderful. So long-term plans aside, uh, assuming that you get your 300 sponsors for 2016, you stay open for another year, do you have any exciting plans in the works? We do. Um, I kept a fair amount of essentially the money that that was excess in reserve, and I intend to keep that in reserve. But um, given that at this point, you know, things look relatively clear-cut next year, I feel I can, can use some of that money to improve what we do in general, and also especially improve things that we that we do for for our sponsors. So probably my my two big exciting plans for next year is that I have a relatively small remodeling job in mind that will allow us to increase our um, uh, sales area by about 300 square feet, which is pretty cool. And the other thing is that. Um, as, uh, as I think I mentioned to you at one point, Rose, we're going to be sort of dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to try to set up the infrastructure and technology so that we'll be able to live stream all of our uh, author events. We'll also be able to uh, store them as podcasts so that it will be much easier for people who aren't located in San Francisco to benefit from and participate in our author events. I'm speaking personally, you know, I just want a super easy way to order books from you from here. Um, it's still, when I think of ordering a book from you, I want to pick up the phone. I don't even know if you have other options now. Right. <laughs> we, ha- we have some, but they're all sort of not, they're not tremendously well set up. Mm. I actually do have one of my other plans for next year is that I would, would actually like to uh, to beat out Amazon's. Uh, one-click ordering system, because I would like to get us to the point where we can do one-note ordering, at least for our sponsors, whereby we would keep credit card and shipping information on file, and you could order a book from us just by sending us the information about what book you wanted um, by any medium, text message, email, phone call, you know, 
post-it notes stuck onto the front door of the store before we open, that basically you could just reach out to us and say, hey, I want this book. And without any effort, any further effort on your part, it'll arrive on your doorstep. Well, that sounds lovely, but uh, I think we've we've really demonstrated that we are very happy to go to some effort uh, if it means helping to keep your store alive. No, you certainly have, and I appreciate the hell out of it. We've been talking with Alan Beats, and you can visit Borderlands Books on Valencia Street in San Francisco and see their success for yourself. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the demographics of the publishing industry, so stay tuned. I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the annual PW Survey of Publishing Salaries and Demographics. Hi, Jim. Hello, Rose. Hey, Mark. Hello. So we call this the salary survey, but the demographics seem to be the big attention getter every year. Tell us a little bit about the survey and uh, what it is exactly that we're surveying. Right, great. Yeah, it's salary survey is a bit of a misnomer. We actually added the word jobs this year, but I don't know if that still mm. covers it. But you know, you're right. What it really gets at is we talk about what the raises were, you know, from year to year. Last year was 2.5% and what some of the average salaries are. But we get into a lot more of people's attitudes towards what they think about their jobs, about the industry in general. And we also ask um, for two years in a row now, um, some diversity questions. And when we did it last year, it, uh, it garnered a lot of attention only because of the fact that I think it put a number on what people mostly already knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, last year, 89% of the people who uh, responded to their survey, and that was over 800 of our subscribers at the book publishers, uh, identified themselves as white or Caucasian. Right. So that that was one of those scientists now know kind of headlines like, you know, smoking gives you lung cancer where we might have guessed it, but it's still another thing to have it right there in in the numbers. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, granted, it, it may be off a couple of percentage points because, you know, it's a random survey, but it. And anybody who's gone to any uh, publishing conference or been mm-hmm. in anything involving book publishing, uh, I don't think we could really did the eye test. You're not going to dispute that number, right? So we've we've had this push in the last year. You know, we need diverse books and a lot of efforts toward diversity in publishing. A lot of people talking about diversity in publishing, but the numbers show that nothing has changed on that racial demographics front. Correct. The, the number for last year, for the 2014 number, was 89%. Um, but like you said, there's been a lot of effort and talk about trying to diversify the workforce and the title base, mm-hmm. which is just as important as um, you know the workforce makeup, because it's, I think, pretty well understood that books for minorities and other, um, you know, groups of color um, are more likely to come from people who have a similar background and that, you know, if it's just white editors doing doing the acquiring, um, you might get a sameness in the type of books that are published. 
Right. It was interesting that you have you you pose we pose these questions here on diversity. Uh, have strides been made in improving diversity in the workplace? And we said for both you know for in white and non-white uh, answered, and they were pretty pretty similar in percentage. Yes. No and don't know. Yeah. So it was about, but they answered about the same, uh, the same percentage. Right, and the, and yeah, and the overall take was no. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Um, so uh, I think that's fair. And we we did ask why, and um, you know, it, it, it sort of falls back on some of the things that have have been identified in the past: entrenched leadership, um, low salaries, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of unpaid internships. Um, and as much as, and publishers do try, I mean, the Association of American Publishers has an outreach program to try to, that goes to different schools to try to bring minorities into the publishing workforce. Um, but, you know, the, the low, generally low pay is a problem in that um, you know, people who may need to have salaries that they can live on <laughs> uh, right. when they get out of right. college. Right. And, and that's not uh, all the time uh, the rule in, in the publishing industry. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about those salary numbers. Did anything jump out at you as unusual this year, a big change from last year? Well, what's... Um what was jumped out a bit at is is that in the overall um, response rate, and as you pointed out, a lot has to do with demographics. We've got a younger um, group responding this year by almost seven years. Wow! Um, and you know, we, we, since it is random, we can't pinpoint you know exactly why that happened. But um, I kind of think it does reflect a lot of the. Um, downsizing and right-sizing efforts that have been going on over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. and that we've seen um, some of the baby boomers who are getting older have either voluntarily retired or may not have voluntarily retired, right. and so they're being replaced by you know, younger and cheaper um, staff members. So the, those right. salary numbers have gone down a little bit. So when we did the overall comparison, the, uh, the salary numbers did go down. Mm -hmm. um, and it could give you a, a ballpark, and it highlights uh, something else that's always a standard um, of, the, of the survey. The average pay for men was about $70,000. Uh, last year, and the average pay for a woman was about fifty-one thousand. Um, that disparity has always been there, and there are a few reasons for that. But when you look at the editorial, it looks like uh, women in, uh, are making more than men. When you look at some of the uh, positions in editorial, right? Editorial of, of the groups you look at is the only place where um, women do uh, make a little bit more than men, right. and, and the overall. Um, pay is um, affected by two major things. Um, men have the highest concentration in management levels, mm -hmm. right. and management right. is typically higher paid than any other segment of, of the industry. Right. And one thing that is really, really interesting is that men have w way more experience overall than women. Um, if you look at the entry-level numbers, only about 15% of uh, people with less than three years' experience are men. But when you get to 
the number of when you get to people of more than 20%, 20 years of experience, mm-hmm. that number rises to 57%. So obviously, the longer you've been in the industry, the more money you're going to make. Um, and I guess it, it probably points out that you know, men have you know, stayed on the job throughout their career, and whereas some women may have you know, taken some time out to, you know, to raise the kids. Right. Or um, see that the advancement possibilities are not so great, the salaries are not so great, and you know, that they don't have a shot at management, and they may look at careers in other, uh, in other fields. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's a distinct possibility the glass ceiling could, uh, could be at play here yeah. as well. Because we do find, um, you know, one of the questions we do ask is, you know, complaints and um, lack of uh, advancement is often cited as, as one of the top one. Lack of advancement, 50% of um, respondents last year said that was one of their bigger issues. Right. So, you know, it is tough. And I think we all know that, you know, a lot of advancement in the industry goes from jumping from house to house. Right. Um, yeah. That you can really be stuck behind, you know, an editor or a great salesman for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to see those complaint numbers broken down by gender um, to see whether, for example, lack of advancement is a bigger complaint among women than it is among men. Yeah, we could do that. That's a good point. <laughs> we can go cross cross tab it after we get off the air. <laughs> so, um, where where is all this all this data? We hang on to it. It's proprietary to us. Or, or are we releasing our numbers? Uh, no, it's uh, we're pretty transparent about it. We have this story and. Um, we all we do sell the entire report for ninety nine dollars, Rose. So oh, thanks, all right. For, thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> and, I promise. I promise. I didn't intend it as a leading question, but it's good to know. And you can you can do all the cross tabs you want when you get them. <laughs> and can you? Is it available via our website? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so our headline on this was: Is publishing getting younger? Um, the question mark there indicates a, a degree of uncertainty. Like we can't to say because the average age was seven years less this year that yes publishing is getting younger right i mean i think we'd have to see how it tracks the next couple of years if the age range stays about the same but you know we've certainly written our fair share of stories about you know a lot of uh high-priced older executives retiring um quote unquote right 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 so so what was the can, can we can we talk about the age range that we got it was the average was 40, 35. 35 right. or 35? 30, 35. Right. It was 42 uh, the year before that. Right. Okay. Wow. I was not expecting to be above the average age <laughs> in, in, in the publishing industry. Well, well, that, there is, well, that's there is, a bit of an eye-opener. And there is a fair amount of churn sure. more younger. So you get right. there is a lot of people still coming in. But as we said before, the vast majority are women, 85%. I, I think that's... Uh, almost as eye-opening as the right. you know, uh, diversity question. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I'm. I wonder. You know, I would love to follow some of those women through their careers and see. You know, what what happens to them, where they go, whether they're all. You know, I think we have the cliche of the woman who starts as the publicity intern because she can't get the job in editorial that she really wants. You know, whether that's actually true or, um, you know, where where those women go, how that attrition happens. Right. I think you probably find. Yeah, I think you probably find the cliche to be right because mm-hmm. uh, we all know yeah. why cliches become cliches. Right. So, uh, any other interesting things that you want to? Uh, 
want to mention here? Well, actually, getting back to the diversity um, question for a second, we did ask a related question in addition to the workforce um, about how do they thought if there was any change in the title output. And there, uh, people were surprisingly a little bit more... Um, optimistic, hmm. and a, a little over half thought that some strides had been made in introducing um, more diverse titles in, into, the, into the mix. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one of the most important probably has been in the, in the population in general, all the discussion about the greater need for diversity has made marketing books that may feature or, or buy about minority groups more attractive to uh, promote and easier to promote. So as one person had said, you know, diversity, instead of being regarded as some sort of detriment to marketing book, now might become an asset. Right. So, so if you're trying to reach a certain demographic, oh, here are these titles that we have now. So, um, you know, I think that's a positive. And I, I think some people are also pretty uh, honest about the, the whole issue of that. It's something that's been around for a long time, and it wasn't going to be solved, you know, in 12 months. Right, right. And our other interesting little uh, pie chart here is that over half of the respondents said their companies are now maintaining staffing levels. So we, maybe we've seen the the end of the era of cut, cut, cut. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true, Rose. It, this has been the lowest uh, response rate I can ever see where they said people were downsized. I think it was only about 16%. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the first year we did it was a couple years after the recession, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I'm sure it was closer to 30%. Right. So it's, uh, it is encouraging. And right. by and large, most of the people who are in it, uh, in the industry now, were more feeling more secure about their jobs right. mm -hmm. and feeling actually almost bullish on publishing. <laughs> yeah. Well, our numbers were in, in our, uh, where we, the title of the, uh, the box is a little bit worried, uh, but, but it seems like, people are either very secure or somewhat secure, the majority of people. Right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's been a nice little uptick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially, especially since the recession has ended. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and a quarter of the companies are even expanding, which is uh, a very nice thing to see. Yeah. Well, as we all know, there's a lot of books being published. Though. <laughs> so true. <laughs> well, clearly, once those diverse books yeah. start making a whole lot of money for the publishers, then uh, the salaries will go up. There you go. That would be nice to see. Yeah. Every, everyone wins. Yeah. Um, and this last thing I just wanted to highlight here, 47% of the respondents said their companies acquired self-published books in 2014. So, uh, and that figure actually went up to 60% among those working at general trade houses. So, um, I think as much as indie authors like to decry the idea of self-publishing as a route to traditional publishing, um, it still seems to really be be working that way, that um, publishers are now looking at indie books as a different slush pile. Absolutely. Uh, this is the second year we asked that question. The numbers are about the same. Um, you know, you're right. that. Uh, Publishers love to look at successful self-published authors, and if they have a little bit of a track record, um, you know, they're happy to sign them up. Yep. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about this, and uh, we'll, we'll have you back for an update next year. Yeah, I'll be here, I think. <laughs> Unless I make too much money. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jim. It's always great to have your optimistic, cheery outlook on the show. <laughs> all right, thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 